All right, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is meant for our growth. And sometimes it drags us kicking and screaming, but it is always for our growth. It is always to stretch us. It is always to move us out of our comfort zone. It is always uh, meant to make us put our focus on you. Really take a hard look at ourselves and seeing if we're living every area of our lives in honor and love towards you. So Lord, I pray that you would open up our, our hearts, that you remove any distractions, that your truths may be buried deep within our hearts, but they wouldn't just stay there, that they would grow and they would make uh, real change in our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes there are passages in the Bible that we read with our 21st century American eyes and they catch us off guard. And we scratch our heads and we say, really? The Bible really teaches that? That's really in the Bible? Sometimes there are Bible passages that we have to dig deeply into. You got to take out the old mental shovel and really start digging in there to find out what it really means. to to really understand and accurately apply what is being said uh, in some verses in the Bible. The passage this morning is one of those passages. And because of that, I have to warn you, this will be a little bit longer than my usual messages. That's why I want you to stretch a little bit. And I ask you to stick with me until the end to really understand what Paul is saying here. There are three movements in Paul's line of thinking as influenced by the Holy Spirit and coming to the conclusion he comes to by the end of chapter 5. We're going to finish chapter 5 this morning. I've had questions brought to me in connection with uh, confusion about this passage that derives an inaccurate understanding of what Paul is actually saying here. In order to truly understand the conclusion that he comes to at the end of chapter 5, we not only have to understand the bigger context that this is a part of, but also see the movement of Paul's line of thinking. And because there's three movements to Paul's line of thinking, this will lend itself very well to our three points uh, this morning. So we'll take each of these three phases in this line of thinking and exploration to get the full picture, and hopefully we'll all walk away from this with the best understanding an application of this as possible. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I heard a lot of rustling. That's good. I like hearing that. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be finishing this up today. I want us all to be able to see this. So the first point that we come to this morning is the leaven. With that, we, we read about that in our scripture reading uh, uh, just a few minutes ago. The first phase in this line of thinking is Paul's illustration of leaven and Jesus. Read along with me in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, ch- chapter 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Paul comes back to the absurd response many in the Corinthian church had to the case of extreme sexual immorality that was going on with one of its members. And he says, your boasting is not good. I don't know why I have to come out and say that to you, but apparently I do. It's not good. Here's why. Obviously, you know that a little leaven or yeast or rising agent in dough automatically makes the whole lump of dough leavened. You can't go back. 
It's not a question of how much or how little leaven makes the dough leavened. Just the simple exposure of any amount of leaven to what was once unleavened automatically now makes it leavened. You can't somehow hide it somewhere in the dough and think it won't have an effect at all. If that dough is left out for any amount of time, then put in the oven, it will become immediately apparent that that dough had leaven in it. Can't hide it. Paul's, Paul's, uh, Paul next connects that obvious real-life observation to the Jewish ob- observance of Passover and the subsequent feast of unleavened bread in verse 9. Of, of verse 7, I'm sorry. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. If anyone remembers from our Exodus series, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were originally given by God to Moses as two separate observances. Passover was celebrated 14 days after the first new moon following the spring equinox. It was originally meant to be a one-day observance of God sparing the firstborn sons of Israel during the 10th plague in Egypt. It started at sunset on the 14th day of the Jewish month that is now known as Nisan and lasted until sunset the following day. We read about Passover in Exodus 12. It is a night to be observed... See that? A night to be observed for the Lord for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. But today, if you Google Passover in 2019, when you look up when Passover takes place this year, you'll see that the result will say that it starts at sunset on February, April 19th and ends seven days later at sunset on April 27th. So what happened? What happened to this one night that now there's seven nights? Here's the process for how that came to be. In Exodus 12, 18 through 19, it tells us, the bread you eat must be made without yeast, unleavened bread, from the evening of the 14th day of the first month, that's Nisan, until the evening of the 21st day of that month. During these seven days, there must be no trace of yeast in your homes. Remember that. Keep that in mind. There must be no trace of yeast in your homes. Anyone who eats anything made with yeast during this week will be cut off from the community of Israel. These regulations apply both to the foreigners living among you and to the native-born Israelites. So the Israelites were to eat unleavened bread starting on Passover, the 14th day. That's when they started. And they continue to not eat it for six more days, totaling seven days. Leviticus 23, 5 through 6 says, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. That's when Passover is supposed to take place. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. As we can see, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were originally meant to be two separate observances celebrated one right after another. The Jewish people were to eat the same Passover meal they ate on the original night of Passover on the 14th day following the first new moon after the spring equinox, which this year falls on April 19th. 
Then the morning following the Passover night, still technically the same day of Passover, since it started at sunset, the Jewish people were to start observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would make it a total of seven days. Over time, the Jewish people just combined the two observances into one. In fact, by the time Jesus walked the earth, the Jewish people had already combined Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread into one day observance. We read in Luke 22, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. They had already combined it by the time Jesus walked the earth. Coincidentally, this year, Passover will coincide with Easter Sunday, 2019. Since the Gospel of John describes the crucifixion of Jesus taking place on Passover as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, we will celebrate his resurrection on the same day he actually did rise from the dead about 1,992 years later this year. What's my point? Don't worry, this all connects to what we're talking about. In verse 7, Paul connects Jesus' death. Look at that in in our passage this morning. Verse 7, Paul also connects Jesus' death as the Passover lamb with the purpose of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, thus fulfilling both at the same time. If one wondered why followers of Jesus are no longer required to observe Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is one verse that describes why. Jesus fulfilled the purpose of Passover by dying as the Passover lamb. Likewise, Jesus also fulfills the observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. However, that does not mean that we can just throw out the meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread out the window because it is fulfilled in Jesus. By following Jesus, we are to still carry out the meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread just now as a lifelong observation of the meaning of it in our lives. What's that meaning? The same exact meaning God wanted the Israelites to understand and observe during those seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven symbolized what? Sin, impurity. Leaven uh, symbolized impurity, while unleavened bread symbolized what? Purity, (laughs) the opposite. All right, you guys are still sticking with me so far, right? All right, so unleavened bread represents a pure heart. Jesus used the same symbolism when he said, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, technically Passover, what were the Israelites to do? Let's go back to Exodus 12. What were they to do? For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. On the first day of the festival, remove every trace of yeast from your homes. Remember, I told you to keep that in mind. Remove every trace of yeast from your homes. They were to physically remove all traces of leaven from their homes. This in and of itself was a sacrifice because it would take seven days for a batch of unleavened dough to ferment, thus making it now leavened and be able to be divided up and put into other unleavened batches of dough 
making them leavened. So on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Israelites were to remove any trace of leaven from their homes, knowing full well that they wouldn't be able to consume leavened bread for another 14 days later, double the time of the actual observance. The point of this physical removal of any trace of leaven was meant to force the Israelites to take stock of their hearts at the same time. The removal of leaven from their homes was meant to remind the Israelites to remove the impurities in their hearts and lives. That's why the punishment for failing to do this that we find more than once in Exodus 12, banishment from the rest of the community of Israel is so severe because of what it was supposed to mean, what you were supposed to also do while you were physically removing this uh, leaven from your homes. The ongoing taking stock of the state of our hearts and how closely they're loving and obeying God is the obedience to Jesus' fulfillment of dying as the Passover lamb. And that's why Paul's form of discipline towards the sinning man referred to in chapter 5 is so extreme, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Cleaning out the old leaven that Paul refers to in verse 7 has two meanings. The Corinthians were to clean out the leaven by removing the sinful man from full fellowship with the rest of the church. The Corinthians, who were boasting about that man's sin and their spiritual freedom, were also to take stock of their hearts and remove that impurity of boasting about that sin. If not, they were spitting on the death of Jesus as the Passover lamb and fulfilling the meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread of doing that removal of both things. Ironically, the Corinthians so-called spiritual freedom that they boasted they had because of the sacrifice of Jesus was the very thing that actually was spitting on the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul then calls the Corinthians to a positive commitment. Verse 8, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is saying, so then, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, let's spiritually celebrate this feast with all the purity that we can. Again, according to one biblical scholar, the fulfillment of Jesus' death of the Feast of Unleavened Bread actually made this a lifelong spiritual observance of the meaning of the feast, not just for seven days out of the year. Because of that, Paul is probably also connecting the observance of the Lord's Supper or communion as the believer's physical celebration of the fulfillment of this feast, the death of Jesus as the Passover lamb. Therefore, Paul calls on the Corinthians to specifically celebrate communion with the least amount of harbored leaven or sin as possible. They are to celebrate communion not with harbored wickedness, that is the acceptance of the grievous sin that man had had committed and they're boasting about it, nor malice probably towards those in the church who did not fully agree with what their fellow church members were doing. Instead, they are to celebrate the joining together as a church, as one in their celebration of communion. That is their remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection with the unleavened and pure truth of what God's standards are 
our obedience to them, and therefore what spiritual freedom Jesus actually died to give us. Furthermore, they are to celebrate communion together with the sincere belief, obedience, and living out of those truths. That accurate understanding of Paul's point here then informs what he has to say in the rest of the chapter. So that's what we'll go on to next. We talked about uh, Paul's symbolism of the leaven and what he called the Corinthians to do with it. Secondly, we're, ta- we're going to talk about their lack of understanding. In the context of what we just talked about, Paul then writes in verse 9, and this is the verse that we are going to come to an accurate understanding and accurate application of. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And we'll combine that with verse 10 as well. But in the context of what we just talked about, Paul then writes in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter. You notice that? In in, in verse uh, 9 there, I wrote you in my letter. What letter is Paul referring to here? If this is 1 Corinthians, what letter is Paul referring to here? And therefore, our first recorded letter Paul wrote to the church, being 1 Corinthians. Why does it seem like Paul is referring to some previous letter here? Because he probably is. He probably is referring to some previous letter here. We don't have this letter. It's most likely been lost to history, and because of that, it was just a regular letter Paul had written to the church previously, yes, with his apostolic authority, but not under the guidance and full inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the very word of God. According to one biblical scholar, most likely during the earlier part of Paul's two-and-a-half-year missionary stint in Ephesus, he had gotten wind from someone about this very same topic he's addressing again here. The man who had so grievously sinned by sleeping with his father's wife. Whether the Corinthians at that time had sincerely inquired of Paul what they should do about it, or whether it was a concerned individual who brought news of the situation to Paul in Ephesus, the the result was the same. The Corinthians had grossly misunderstood the instruction that Paul had written to them in that long-lost letter. In verse 9, Paul refers that he has already given them uh, instruction on this topic. But they had grossly misunderstood it by applying it to the wrong people. In verse 10, Paul refers to the category of people the Corinthians had misapplied that instruction towards. Verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Apparently, the previous letter, Paul had already told them how to address the sin of this man, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and which he will reiterate in the next verses. That instruction was, as verse 2 of the same chapter describes, to remove this man from their midst and to not have close fellowship with him. In the context of what we just talked about in connection with communion, this at the very least included prohibiting the man from observing communion with the rest of the church, along with any close personal fellowship with any church members. At most, this also included prohibiting him from any regular worship meetings for a time. 
This extreme end of discipline is most likely what Paul is, is prescribing since the hope was that the man would be terrified into repentance from feeling the sapping of spiritual strength derived from regular fellowship with his spiritual brothers and sisters and being put through the ringer by Satan himself is already referenced in verse 5. However, that instruction was applied by the Corinthians to those committing sin openly who weren't even part of God's family by the blood of Jesus. Those outside the church, those were the people that they were applying that instruction to. Paul explains the absurdity of that line of thinking at the end of verse 10. If they really stopped and thought about it, if they were cutting themselves off from every person sinning out in the world, if they followed that line of thinking to the end, they would have to remove themselves from the world. It's completely illogical. That is not what I meant at all, Paul says here. Instead, this is what I meant. And this is what we come to in our third point this morning. The lesson, verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Those are very powerful words there, aren't they? Since this is clearly the instruction that Paul had already given them, we see a sequential movement of discipline. He wrote to them the first time in that long lost letter, dealing with this situation the first time. Apparently, this previous instruction, which we now find out about, was not as extreme as what Paul is now prescribing for that sinning man. The first instruction was to simply prohibit the church from associating or having close contact with this man, and as the end of verse 11 describes, to not observe the Lord's Supper with him. We can imply that at that point, the man was not prohibited from being a part of the regular worship and teaching meetings in the hope that what was being uh, taught from the Bible would move him to repent and that would be it. However, because many in the church misunderstood that instruction, their misunderstanding of spiritual freedom grew leading to them boasting about their open acceptance of what that man was doing and extremely damaging the church's testimony before an unbelieving world. That's why in the second letter to them, known to us as 1 Corinthians, Paul prescribes harsher discipline towards the man and even greater shame to the church. Paul now goes back to how he originally instructed the Corinthian church to handle open sin in the church. He repeats the same list of sins in verse 11 that he already mentioned in verse 10. Do you notice that? He repeats the same exact list. Why these sins? Why these sins specifically? Why not include anybody who's a murderer or anybody who's a habitual liar and other sins? Why not include those as well? These may be the sins that Paul knew were rampant in Corinth itself, or they may be sins that were generally ones that people living in the first century Greco-Roman world had the biggest trouble with. We talked a few weeks about what immorality refers to. It's, it's more specific than just general immorality. The word used here for immorality is pornos, which should already give us an obvious 
definition of what kind of immorality Paul is referring to here. Sexual immorality. Paul expands his reference of sexual immorality, that is, from the incestuous case between a man and his father's wife, to other definitions of sexual immorality in chapter 6, verse 9, further on in this letter. And he says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality. This is not an exhaustive list, but rather this is a vice list. That is a list of biblical sins that characterized a particular culture. It's not the culture that characterized the sin. That is what determined what was sin. The Bible does that. Rather, the vice list here in our passage and further on in this verse is a list of sins that characterized a culture. For instance, one could sit down, if you really wanted to, it wouldn't be very much fun. One could sit down and come up with a vice list of sins that characterize America. We will get into this list here more in depth when we cover this passage in the near future. But we see that what Paul notes are the practices and identities that characterize unbelievers. Those who will have no part in the kingdom of God. What we can take from this for now is that these are especially, these here are especially the sins that Paul was telling the Corinthians that they shouldn't have any part in as believers in Jesus because they characterize those who have no part in the kingdom of God. A few weeks ago, we saw what God's standard of what sexual purity and obedience to him is, and that is only the sexual relationship within the binds of marriage. We saw from looking at verses throughout the whole Bible that any other sexual relationship outside of a marriage between one man and one woman is what Paul then defines as sexual immorality here in verse uh, 11 of our passage and the expansion of what that includes though not exhaustively is in this verse chapter 6 verse 9 going back to our passage next in our list we talked about immoral person next in our list is covetous this is someone who is greedy of gain either of material possessions that someone else has or someone else's spouse or an employment position or a social status. It's not being content with what God has given to someone and always wanting more and more and wanting what other people have. That's the definition of a covetous person. Thirdly, Paul lists an idolater. In the context of the Corinthian church, this would be referring to someone who claimed to have renounced the Greek or Roman gods to commit their lives to Jesus, but still harbored those beliefs and was acting on them as well. This may have included the customary acts of pagan worship, like worshiping statues of Greek and Roman deities, and engaging in uh, pagan temple prostitution. Next, Paul mentions a reviler in verse 11. This is, we don't hear that word very much these days. This is someone who verbally abuses others. This is someone who badmouths other people all the time. They vocally try to harm someone else's reputation by the things they say about them. 
This was incredibly damaging to the church body as well as the testimony of the church and therefore has no part in the church. It still doesn't. It only tears down. It only damages. It only fuels discontentment and conflict. Fourthly, Paul notes a drunkard. This describes someone who is always intoxicated with alcohol as it is derived from the word that means being drunk. It is not referring to anyone who ever consumes the tiniest amount of alcohol, for then Jesus would be included in that definition. But drunkenness, and especially constant drunkenness, is a very dangerous practice, and thus why it's consistently condemned and warned against throughout Scripture. Lastly, Paul mentions a swindler. Again, not a word that you use very much these days, a swindler. This is similar to thievery, but it's more closely related to extortion. That is, manipulating people to give you what you want. We can see how destructive this is to human relationships, and especially the church. Now, what I want us to see, what Paul, th- th- this is what I want us to see what Paul is getting at here. We already looked albeit very briefly, at the expanded list of sexual immorality in chapter 6, verse 9. Now let's read the rest of that list. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, now that looks very familiar, doesn't it? Isn't that what we just read in verse 11 of our passage this morning? That's the point. We need to see Paul's instruction in verse 11 of this, of this morning's passage as being a part of the same context as verses 6 and 9 of the, of the following chapter. Uh, verses uh, uh, 9 and 10, rather, of the following chapter. That will be the key to unlocking what Paul means by not associating with anyone in the church whose life includes these sins. When dealing with the, old, with, with, the, with the New Testament letters, we are at a disadvantage from those the letters were originally addressed to because we don't know the full conversation. It's like listening to someone talk to someone else on the phone. We only get one side of the conversation. And from that, we can piece together the context of what was said. However... What is lost, what we don't have, is you don't know the background and the past of the two people having a conversation. We don't know how far they go back. We don't know what the nature of their friendship is or what's already been said in the past about a certain topic. With me so far? Okay, thank you. That's very similar to what's going on here. We don't know everything that Paul has previously written to the Corinthians on this topic. Just what he chose to reiterate here. Paul only reiterates what his previous instruction to the Corinthians were in verse 11, but he doesn't mention why this is his instruction to them in verse 11. However, further on in chapter 6, verse 11, we get the full picture of why he tells them not to associate with so-called brothers and sisters who fit on that vice list. And following the expansion of of that vice list that was biblical sins that characterized the surrounding unbelieving and pagan culture, Paul says, some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. 
You are made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the key right there to understanding our passage this morning. That, in addition to what Paul had already told them about removing the leaven from their lives, is what brings us to an accurate understanding of what Paul is saying here. These sins were what they used to be known for. But because they realized they were sinners, they realized they needed a Savior, they realized that they needed a call on the name of Jesus to save them from their sins, they have been spiritually cleansed from those sins. Praise be to God. Amen. They have been made a new creation, reconciled with God, and are being transformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus. That is their new name. The Corinthian believers were not the same people anymore. They were not characterized by their former sins anymore. In other words, and Paul listing out these specific sins, while they are still sins, he is not just pointing at people who struggled with them or were dealing between them and God with these specific sins and telling the church not to associate with people connected to those specific sins. In connection with what Paul says further on in 6.11, what he's saying in 5.11 is to not have close fellowship with a person who claims to be, to be a believer in Jesus and flat out continually refuses to do anything to make all of their sins right with God. Everybody understand that? All right. Those sins may be the same as the ones on this list or they may be different for us. That's why Paul refers to those as so-called in name only because we should all as children of God be characterized by the cleansing of us by the Holy Spirit and therefore the removal of leaven from our lives. So what this verse does not mean is to not associate with unbelieving people in the world who are even blatantly living a certain lifestyle that does not match up with what the Bible commands. Paul makes that clear in verse 10 and in verse 12. And, and, and 13, read along with me, the end of our passage. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, those outside the church? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Judging outsiders includes cutting ourselves off as individuals from having connections with people who live unbiblical lifestyles. And Paul says, what have I to do with that? Only God has anything to do with that. Only God is the one who judges those people. If Paul did cut himself off from unbelievers, how is he going to plant any churches by leading any thoroughly pagan Greco-Roman people to Jesus and away from those lifestyles? In the same way, we as believers should not and cannot cut ourselves off from anyone living in unbiblical lifestyle, or else how are we going to share the love and truth of Jesus with them? It's a different story if they're the ones influencing us to act unbiblically, but how else are they going to hear about Jesus if we are not the ones to tell them? What Paul means in, ver in chapter 5, verse 11, also does not mean to not associate with people who are struggling with a certain sin or who are in the process of making those sins right with God or who didn't even know something was a sin in the first place. 
It's referring to those who want to enjoy the full fellowship of being a part of the church, but are actually damaging it by continually refusing to repent of different sins and refusing to get those sins right with God. They want to be characterized as followers of Jesus, but their lives are showing something else. Sometimes church discipline is needed, like what Paul describes in verse 11. Let's all get what characterizes us as individuals right. Instead of the consistent refusal to repent of different sins and take what steps need to be taken to get them right with God, being what characterizes us, let us all make what characterizes us the consistent surrendering of every area of sin in our lives to the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Let that be what characterizes us. Let us all remove the leaven in our lives. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's been fulfilled. Let us all take the spiritual freedom that Jesus' death and resurrection offers us. Freedom to live our lives as pleasing to God as possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words in your book of truth. Even though we need to take a shovel and dig pretty deeply to have an accurate understanding and therefore accurate application of what is being said, Lord, we thank you that that doesn't change the truth of what is being said. We thank you that you are both the fulfillment of truth and love and that you, as you relay God's truth to us in love, we relay your truth to others in love. That we all, as one body, that we would all remove the leaven from our lives, that we would get what needs to be gotten, made right with you, and that we would all grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as one body. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.